Okay. Let's see. If you have Bibles with you, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 17 to 21. I want to say Happy Easter. Good Friday and Easter Sunday are, the, are two of the most significant events in all of human history. Along with creation and the incarnation, there, there are none more important, in my humble opinion. The message I'm going to share today is about the cross. Is the cross a punishment or a cure? I shared it here last Sunday, and maybe the Sunday before that. This topic came up in the, in the book club that we were doing, uh, understanding of, of the cross, and it just seemed like there were enough questions that it was worthwhile taking this message out, dusting it off, and sharing it with you uh, once again. So if you've heard this one before, let it be a refresher for you. If you haven't, I hope that it inspires you to look at the cross and the resurrection from a new perspective. So this morning, I want to take what might be considered by some a unique look at the cross. I want to ask some questions and and challenge some common assumptions that we have, most of us have, about the cross, especially for those of us who've been raised in the church, one different flavor or another. And I want to answer this particular question. Is the cross a punishment, or was the cross a cure? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That Christ was reconciling the world to himself, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. I love this next line. If you don't have this underlined or highlighted in your Bible, I don't know why. Not counting people's sins against them. I don't know of too many Christians who have ever considered God and that statement in the same category. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's good news. And he has committed to us the message of recon reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We employ you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to focus on verse 19 today. It says, God was reconciling the world to himself in, in, in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, I'll come right back to that. Like many of you, I was raised believing that the justice of God demanded a sacrifice for sin, that a holy and just God could not bear the presence of sin, and therefore a, an atoning sacrifice was demanded. And to satisfy his need for justice and God's demand for holiness, the Father sent God the Father sent God the Son to earth to die in the brutal agony of crucifixion as punishment for the sins of mankind. And that Jesus, in his great love, paid the price, and I get to go free. 
That's a pretty good deal on my end. That's not such a good deal for Jesus. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Does that somehow fit within the context of your upbringing in the church? Is that your understanding of the cross? Is that familiar to anyone? You can nod your head. You can raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, I think a lot of us have had that concept. So, yes, it's a good deal on my end, not so much for Jesus. But, but what does it say about the Father? What would that say about any Father? What would it say about me? For example, let's say, hypothetically, you did something to offend me. I don't know. You did something, you said something. As a result, I found your behavior offensive. And in order for me to forgive you, I need to expel or to expend this wrath that I'm feeling. And so what I do is I decide I'm going to expend the wrath on my son. So I take my son, Tom, my only son. My, I have a few guys, a few friends of mine, friends of mine. They take my son out into the backyard and they beat him to death with baseball bats as I watch from a discreet distance of, say, maybe the back porch. And now once my wrath has been expended, with my son being beaten to death, and I've gotten this justice satisfied, I've gotten it out of my system, you and I could be friends. Want to be my friend? Would you want to be friends with anyone who would brutally beat an innocent to death? Of course not, right? That's preposterous. Nobody would want to be a friend with a person like that. I offend you, and because I've offended you, you beat your son to death? Are you psycho? What's wrong with you? I don't want to be friends with you. I want you arrested. I want you as far away from me as possible. You're dangerous. However, the crucifixion story most often told paints God the Father as some angry, bloodthirsty deity whose appetite for justice can only be satisfied by the death of an innocent, the most compassionate and gracious human being who's ever lived. Am I the only one that struggles with that story? I struggle with that. From this perspective, a case could be made that our God is not much different than the Molech or Baal or any of the other false deities that required human sacrifice to to satisfy their uncontrollable rage. Something is wrong with this story. Something's terribly wrong with this story. Could the same God who asks us to forgive without seeking vengeance be requiring of us what he was unwilling or unable to do himself? Is God demanding that we be more gracious than he is? Something is wrong with this story. The pieces don't fit. Not when you ask these kind of questions. It don't, doesn't make sense. Now, many of the Old Testament writers did look forward to the cross as a sacrifice that would satisfy God, and they certainly used the language of punishment to explain it. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the New Testament writers looking back on the cross through the redemption of the cross, they saw it differently. They saw it quite differently. They didn't see the act of an angry God seeking restitution, but as the self-giving, 
of a loving God who came to rescue broken humanity. The New Testament picture of the cross does not present God as some brutalizing tyrant expending his anger on an innocent victim, but as a loving father who took this devastation of our failures and held it in his consuming power, the power of his love, until sin was destroyed. And by doing that, opens a way, a doorway, a portal, if you were, a way for us to re-engage in a trusting relationship with the God of the universe. The New Testament writers, they saw the cross not as a sacrifice God needed in order to love us, but one that we needed to be reconciled to him. Let me say that again. The New Testament writers saw the cross not as a sacrifice that God needed or required in order to love us, but one we needed so that we could be reconciled to him. I believe that most of us, when I say us, I mean Christians, I believe that most Christians have a sadly distorted view of the cross. Since Adam's fall, we've come to picture God the Father not as a loving Father inviting us to trust him, but some type of an exacting sovereign that must be appeased at all costs. So when we start from that vantage point, we miss God's purpose concerning the cross entirely. His plan, God's plan, was not to satisfy some need in himself at his son's expense, but rather to satisfy a need in us at his own expense. So at the cross, Jesus is hanging there. He's been brutally beaten. He's hung on a cross. Where's God the Father? Where is God the Father in all this? We have fathers in this room. If your son had been brutally beaten and you know he's innocent and they've crucified him, you know, there are people in the world being crucified today. There are Christians who are being crucified in other parts of the world today. If your son, God forbid, was crucified, where would you be? You'd either you'd, you'd have given your last breath to prevent it, or you'd been right there with him until the very, the very end, right? And you're just an earthly father. Where was God the Father at the cross? Now, I think many of us have this point of view. I've said that this before here, but I think all too many of us have this concept of God, that, that God the Father is the mean one, and that Jesus is the nice one, and the Holy Spirit's the weird one, right? That's kind of how we, we kind of look at it, right? So when you pray, especially if you've been really bad and sinful, I want, I want to pray to Jesus, right? If I'm feeling pretty good about myself, maybe I'll pray to the Father, and depending upon your capacity for weird, you'll yield to the Holy Spirit, you know? How many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? It's probably played, in, played somewhere in the last... On Holy Week, all the good movies, all the good Jesus movies come out, right? I think it's a great movie, deeply moving. I really enjoyed uh, most of it, but, but there's one scene in the movie that I really found disappointing, and it's, it's the teardrop scene. It's the, 
It's the moment where Jesus says it is finished and they're, they're showing this aerial view almost through the eye of God and you see this teardrop come and fall and as the, the teardrop hits the ground, there's the earthquake. And so it depicts the Father as watching from a discreet distance. He's, the Son's on the cross, the Father's watching from somewhere in heaven. Kind of like I described having you know, a couple of guys beat my son to death with baseball bats while I'm watching from the porch. I wouldn't want to get any of that on me now, would I? Right? So I'm at a discreet distance. Now, I love the movie. I'm troubled by that scene. I thought it was great cinematography, but terrible theology. Terrible theology. It reinforces, it communicates a, a, a wickedly wrong assumption. And it's this, that the Father couldn't look upon sin. That the Father couldn't be in the presence of sinful man. And so he turned away from his son, forsaking him on the cross at the moment that Jesus became sin for us. And at that moment, the Father forsook him. That's, what, that's been the common understanding for many of us who've been raised in Christianity, that Jesus became sin, right? He didn't just take on our sin. The verses we read earlier said he became sin. And so that when Jesus became sin, the Father couldn't look at him, and he forsook him. I'm deeply bothered by the thought that somehow, some way, God was able to separate himself at the cross. That somehow, God the Father executed wrath on God the Son while standing at some discreet distance. Such thinking not only denies the essence and nature of God in the Trinity, I believe it horrifically distorts what actually happened on Calvary's cross. In our main text today, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. God wasn't some distant observer. He was an active participant in the work on the cross. Jesus Excuse me, father, the Father, he did not send Jesus to do what he would not do, but God the Father himself acted through God the Son, Jesus, to bring about our redemption. Let me say it again. God the Father was not some distant observer. He was an active participant. He didn't send Jesus to do what he was unwilling to do. God the Father himself acted through Jesus to bring about our redemption. Then, okay, Tom, we're kind of getting your point here, but what about Matthew 27, 46, where from the cross Jesus cries out, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Is Jesus lying there? Are you just ignoring that text? Did you just kind of like white out that verse? What's up? What happened? What's the deal there? Why does Jesus say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In short, I don't believe that God the Father forsook God the Son at his darkest hour. Could the faithful one be unfaithful? But here's my proof text. Here's my evidence. Here's my biblical evidence for the fact that the Father did not forsake the Son. In John 16, 32, Jesus is prophesying to his disciples. They're in the upper room together. This is, this is hours before his arrest and beatings, and crucifixion. And this is what he says to his disciples, a time is coming, 
and in fact has come. Well, you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet, I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Jesus prophesies to his disciples, they're going to leave him, but he wants them to know with absolute certainty that his Father will be with him. I don't believe for a moment that God the Father forsook God the Son. Not for one minute. Minute. I do believe that there's a vast difference between what God the Father did and what Jesus perceived. Well, what do I mean by that? Think about it. Sin dulls our perception of God. Sin dulls our perception of God. And on the cross, Jesus became our sin. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a little bit ago, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a huge difference between the distorted perceptions of sin and the reality of God. That's why when we're in the midst of sin, when we're buried underneath our sinfulness, when we feel like 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag, it feels to us like God's far away. It's not the reality. He said in his word he would never leave us or forsake us. He said in his word that he would always be with us. But sometimes sin, it creates a fog. And we can't see him. It doesn't mean he's not there. We just cannot perceive him. It doesn't mean he's left us. It just means we can't see him through the darkness. The resounding truth, however, is that God's always there never turning his face against those who are his. To think he did so with his son, to think he did so with Christ, it's absolutely unthinkable. That Jesus felt abandoned on the cross only shows the depth to which he experienced our sin and the sin for all mankind. And yet his time on the cross doesn't end with questioning of being forsaken. Rather, it concludes with a statement of trust from Luke 23, 46, where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's a false argument. And the argument's been this, and we've bought into it, most of us. And the argument is that God cannot bear to look on sin. So when Sins were laid on Jesus. God the Father had to turn his face away from the Son. And I think that argument just doesn't hold water, and here's why. Because God's never run from sinful humanity. Think about it. He didn't hide from Adam and Eve in the garden. They hid from him. He was seeking them out. It wasn't God who was hiding from them because they said, sin, they're the ones who took on the, the fig leaves and hid behind the bushes when they heard him coming. Jesus had dinner at Matthew the tax collector's house and all his sinner friends, right? Was Jesus blindfolded at that meal? How about when the woman washed his feet with her hair? You know, was he like kind of sticking his foot out and kind of doing this? Not at all. Jesus looked on them. He loved them. He embraced them. He was with them. He was for them. Jesus didn't run from sinner's sins. He hugged them. He held on to them. He embraced them. He loved them lavishly and extravagantly. So much so 
that Jesus embraced sinners, that the religious Pharisees of the day put this accusation on them. One that I would wear as a badge of honor today, and I'm sure Jesus did. They didn't mean it that way when they called him a friend of sinners. That wasn't a compliment. That was an insult. Jesus didn't run from sinners. He didn't run from their sin. He stood there with them. How about the woman caught in the very act of adultery? Not only did Jesus look upon her, he saved her life that day. He stood in the gap for her that day. Amazing. That false argument just doesn't hold water. It's not that God cannot bear to look on sin. Rather, we in our sin have trouble looking on God. He's not the one who hides. We are. God is powerful enough and he's holy enough to look on sin and to be completely untainted by it. He always, it's always been that way. And he did so at the cross. On the cross, God didn't just deal with our sins, but with the very nature of sin itself. By allowing sin to touch his personhood, the personhood of Jesus, God the Son, he was able to prevail in himself over that which we were powerless to fight. Through the physical body of Jesus, sin came face to face with the power of God. And like it always does, the power of God prevailed completely. So what if, what if we have a different perception of the cross? What if we can view the cross not as punishment for sin, what if we could view it as the cure for sin? What if we could look at it differently? What if sin is a disease? For our, for our conversation, let's consider sin as cancer. And what if the wrath of God is the cure for that sin? It's the treatment. It's the antidote against sin. And again, for this conversation, let's, let's call it the chemotherapy. The wrath or chemo isn't focused against me, but against the sin of cancer in me. Does that make sense? The wrath of God actually is in defense of me. The wrath of God, this antidote for sin, isn't God's uncontrollable rage against me, but instead it's his passionate and extravagant love for me and against the sin that's in me. Think about it. Probably every person here, lives, either through family members or friends, has been touched by cancer in one way or another. Think, think about it. The purpose of chemotherapy is to kill the cancer before it kills the patient, right? It's a careful balancing act of deadly poisons. Believe me, I know. So God the Father, in Christ, took the treatment in our place, because he knew that the chemo of his wrath would have to kill us before it killed the cancerous sin. That was God's dilemma in his desire to rescue us. The passion he had to cure our sickness of sin would overwhelm us before the work was done. Only God himself, only God himself was strong enough, powerful enough, he was the only one who could endure long enough the treatment that our healing required, that our brokenness demanded. 
So he took our place. He embraced our disease, becoming sin itself, and then he drank the antidote that would consume sin in his own body. Now, for the more theologically minded here, that's substitutionary atonement. He took our place because he was the only one that could endure the cure for sin. Now, most men, when they were crucified, it took about 30 hours to die. Scripture tells us Jesus died in six. Why did he die so, so quickly? Because the treatment was so severe. It wasn't the, it wasn't the physical that killed him. It was, it, was the, it was the wrath of God against the cancer of sin that took him out in six hours. God's purpose in the cross was not to defend his holiness by punishing Jesus instead of us. Rather, it was to destroy sin in the only vessel that could hold it until God in his passion totally destroyed the sin of mankind. God was not brutalizing his son as retribution for Athayas. He was loving us through the son in a way that would completely set us free. Free to know him and free to transform us to be like him. And that's a God worth knowing. That dramatically changes the Easter story. So you might be listening to me today and think, you know, Tom, are you, you know, is this how many, you know, angels you could fit on the head of a pin? Is this, is this a significant theological point? I think, it, I think it's profoundly important. I think it really matters. I think it matters profoundly. I will not trust someone who will beat an innocent to death. I won't trust that person. Nothing can make me trust someone who would beat an innocent to death. Can't go there. Just won't do it. I don't want to be friends with someone who would beat their son to death. Don't want to do it. But let me tell you, I will forever trust and love and be friends with someone who would take chemotherapy in my place. I'll love that person forever. I've had chemo too many times. I know just how loving an act, how sacrificial an act of love that would be. Religion sees the cross as punishment. Relationship, looking through the lens of relationship, sees it as, as a cure for a disease that was killing us. Guys, our Heavenly Father, he loves us lavishly and extravagantly. I pray that you could see the difference today. Back to our main text. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they have always been one. They share perfect communion of love. Always have, always will. They've never been separated. And by the cross, the cross didn't separate the Father from the Son. What happened at the cross is we were welcomed into that circle, that unbroken, that perfect circle of perfect love and relationship. We were welcomed in. The cross wasn't an act of dividing the Trinity. It was the entry path for us to become one in relationship with them. It matters because it radically changes our concept of Christianity. 
Because if the Father can abandon the Son in his hour of need, he can abandon me in my darkest hour. Or he can abandon you in your darkest hour. If the Father can mistreat the Son, then he can mistreat us as his sons and daughters. If the Father is harsh, then pastors and prophets, they can excuse being harsh. But if God the Father, if Papa, if Abba loves us extravagantly, not only are we called to love extravagantly, but we're empowered to love extravagantly by his actions and by his example. And we can do it because in his spirit, by the Holy Spirit, he dwells within us. He's made his He lives inside of us. I believe this understanding of what happened at the cross and seeing the Father from this perspective, it changes everything. It, makes, it takes him from being untrustworthy to being trustworthy. And the whole point the whole point of the cross and the resurrection is so that the trust that was, was lost in the garden could be restored between us and God. That we would trust him. It's all about trust. It's, it's all about trust. This whole journey that you're on right now is about learning how to trust God. And so which father would you rather trust? The one who beats his innocent son to death or the one who takes chemotherapy in your place? I think we've misunderstood one of the most significant events in all of human history. And I think it's had a devastating impact on our ability to have a trust relationship with this God who, who is rich in mercy and who loves us lavishly. God's good. He loves us. He's got a, he's got a plan for our lives, and it's a good plan. He's worthy of our trust. So if you've struggled trusting God, if this has been a struggle for you, maybe you're in that place right now. Maybe you're in that place today. You woke up this morning. Maybe it's been a rough week or a rough month or maybe the whole year's been rough. And you're thinking, I don't know if I could keep trusting God. If you struggle with this concept of trusting God, nothing would give me greater pleasure than to pray for you on Easter Sunday. And so if that's you, if you, if you would... If you'd stand, I'd be happy to pray for you today. If you'd like to be able to trust him more fully and more freely, I'd be happy to pray for you. Okay, let's pray. Oh God, help us trust you. Lord, I pray... I pray for my friends today as I pray for myself. Lord, help us to know the truth and that the truth would set us free. Lord, would you remove from us lies and deceptions? Take the, take the calluses from our hearts. Take the scales from our eyes. Lord, would you reveal truth, sometimes even subtle things like this, that you abandon the Son. Take that lie out of us, Lord, that you've abandoned us or that you've ever forsaken us, especially in our darkest hours of deepest need, Lord. Remove that lie from us, I pray. And Lord, write the truth on our hearts, the truth of your great love, the truth of your tireless faithfulness, the truth of just how great and grand 
and lavishes your love for each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would begin in each life to cultivate an atmosphere of trust in our midst. That we could trust you. Lord, I pray that you would remind us daily in little ways, in big ways, just how trustworthy you are. Do it, Lord. And Lord, I pray for everyone else here today that you would bless them. Lord, I pray that this Easter Sunday would be a time of celebration that we would remember all the good that you've done in our lives. That the rest of the day would be a day of delightful celebration with family and with friends. Do it, Lord. Lord, we ask that you cover us and that you bless us and you protect us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen? God bless you guys today. Enjoy the rest of your Easter Sunday. And Nadine and I look forward to seeing you guys throughout the rest of the week.